Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what role should Congress have in foreign affairs? My guest is Alyssa Ardito, the author of the book, Machiavelli and the Modern State, The Prince, The Discourses on Livy, and The Extended Territorial Republic. She's had a rich and varied career in governance, and she has thought deeply about legislatures and policymaking. Dr. Ardito has served as a general counsel at the Congressional Budget Office, and as an attorney advisor with the Administrative Conference of the United States. She received a PhD in political science from Yale University, a JD from the University of Virginia School of Law, and a BA from the University of Virginia, all of which makes her wise in the ways of statecraft. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. Let's start our inquiry with the Constitution, the foundation for our system of national self-governance. What constitutional powers does Congress have over foreign affairs? Well, actually, if you look at the text of the Constitution, Congress has quite a lot of power over foreign affairs. The um, issue is that um, they're littered in various different parts of Section 8 and Section 10 of Article 1. I'll just mention a few. Um, Actually, the first um, is is a clause one of Section one, um, tax and spend, the power to lay and collect taxes, pay debts and provide for the common defense. Congress also has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, establish uniform rule of naturalization, define and punish piracies on the high seas, the great war power of um, Section eight, clause 11 to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, make rules concerning captures on land and water. And then it even moves in arguably to everything about raise and support armies. And then even so provide and maintain a Navy, regulate and call forth the militia. And then you get into, I think, fascinating. Um, I would argue that Section 9, Clause 7, no money drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by laws, also constitute made by law constitutes a, a, a foreign affairs power. Um, then you get into all the limitations um, in Section 10 on states, which used to, or the real concern was the time of the framing, that they were exercising foreign affairs, independent foreign relations independently. And then you can even move into um, Article 2 and the powers of the Senate, the treaty power and advise and consent on nominations as well. So taken together, that that's a that's actually a pretty robust set of powers. Yes, yes. And these powers uh, were, as you alluded to, uh, scraped away from executive authority and scraped away from state authority and centered in uh, the first branch of Congress. Now, Congress's authorities, we should probably also mention, go beyond those explicitly enumerated in the Constitution. Obviously, there are a whole number of statutes that assign powers to Congress over foreign affairs, such as the War Powers Resolution. But additional legislative powers exist beyond that. 
for example, senators and members of the House can use their positions to raise the salience of issues, such as when Congress allows leaders of foreign nations to address it, or when legislators engage in legislative diplomacy uh, and make trips abroad to meet with heads of state. There seems to be so much that Congress can do in foreign affairs. Is that right? Yes, there actually is a lot that Congress um, can do. Um, you know, even the, the statutes that allocate powers to Congress, what they're, they're, they're just, um, they're implementing those sort of broader textual powers in very specific ways, um, to effectuate them. Um, and so even the war powers resolution, you know, depending on one's views, one could argue it's unconstitutional, but I think the consensus is that they are. But yeah, Congress has moving along. Congress has informal powers it can use. Um, again, it can rate pass resolutions. Senator Graham did one um, about the sale of certain jets to Ukraine. It can um, use um, ceremonial functions such as hosting um, dignitaries. Also, um, holding hearings um, are specific ways in which through exercising oversight, Congress um, can be influential and can raise the salience of certain issues. And I think um, not to take too much of a contemporary example, but um, the various funding bills um, Congress has passed on a bipartisan basis on um, aid to Ukraine are examples of, I mean, it's a formal power in that it's grounded in the Constitution and the Appropriations Clause, but it also acts in a way to give Congress um, more influence as well as authority than you might otherwise think. It's not following in the wake of the president. It's actually sort of taking the lead, I think, you could argue in many ways more recently, which is unusual. Yes, I think there's often a habit to try to allow uh, the executive to be the sole voice of policy and international affairs. But there is absolutely nothing to stop any single member of Congress or an entire political party to simply assert themselves on an issue and which if you're a foreign head of state and you realize the president's saying one thing and members of Congress are saying another, that has impact, that has effect. Now, let me move on to the next question. Uh, I want to go back to the Constitution. When the founders bargained it out, they took away many traditional executive authorities over foreign policy from our executive and assigned it to Congress. Uh, examples include the ability to independently raise funds, as you mentioned, uh, and to make treaties. Why did they do this? This was in such distinction to the old practices of Europe, for example. That's such a great question. And they did this for a couple reasons. Um, and one way to think about it is to kind of, it looks as though they're pulling powers away from an executive, but you actually had examples of monarchs who, by accident of history, exercise what we think of as executive authority. But there's a historical background and then there's a functional reason because many powers kings exercise based on prerogative were sometimes also legislative in nature. So it gets really confusing because we're layering old ideas about mixed government, which go back to Polybius and ancient Rome, which divides the institutions of government based on class. Are they representing the few, the many, and the one? And then around the time of the English Civil War, you get this functional separation that it's not who in society is being represented in this body, right? It's like, well, what's that institution doing? So that's when it, and the fulcrum of this really is the design on the framing of the Constitution, because they're right at sort of their their heirs of both these ways of thinking. But back to your your initial um, ideas that 
Well, they found that they had the the benefit of, as Jack Rakov often points out, of 10 years or more dealing with state constitutions. And the state constitutions really exemplified pulling away any authority from the executive. So they had, um, they were really um, focused on legislative government and having the, and in disempowering the executive. They found that these constitutions didn't work. So they realized, no, we've got to reallocate things yet again and move back to giving our executives some power, but not too much. So they decide to split it, which is sort of the great innovation. Um, so it's not almost, it's starting from almost a tabula rasa and saying, how can we allocate this power more effectively? What I find fascinating is throughout the long summer, they spent a lot of time, the Senate really was going to be the preserve of a lot of the foreign affairs powers and was actually going to have the authority to negotiate treaties as well as have a say in ratifying them. It was only towards the very end that they pulled some of that out and gave it to the executive and then um, kept some in the Senate. So because we're so, I think, inured to thinking of by nature and by, as Mansfield, Harvey Mansfield has said, the informal sort of powers the president gets for a variety of reasons, we always think of it as pulling away. But in some ways, in the Constitution, in the framing, we got a pulling away of powers from the legislature and Congress over to the president as a reaction against what they thought was some short term thinking in the state constitutions. And you, you kind of more to what you've said we were speaking, though, to is some of the key was not just um, powers bestowed on, on Congress, as well as sort of the power to declare war and to the Senate treaties, but also fundamental um, in the British experience was uh, were the mutiny acts um, that evolved after the Bill of Rights and the Acts of Settlement. But this was before the Act of Settlement. This was 1789, where Parliament every year starts to vote on the military, military and supplies to the military to prevent the king from supporting um, and maintaining a standing army during peacetime. So the idea that the legislature, the will of the people have a say in how much an army or military is funded, as well as other aspects of military governance. Um, you can't have martial law during peacetime, for example. These are bits and pieces of the British experience that are that are very influential when it comes to, to shaping these broad contours of powers between two institutions that they're thinking of. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the British experience. I'm reminded of the fact that uh, in the Declaration of Independence, we, we have lines that real reference kind of bad American colonist experiences involving uh, military imposed against them. They're, they're, they were supposed to be part of the empire. They were yet a, the executive is using military force against them. So there's complaints about uh, the king has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power, the quartering of large bodies of armed troops among us, uh, the cutting off of our trade with all parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at our constitution and you can see those specific gripes actually responded to and corrected in the text of the constitution because they didn't want to see a repeat of that movie. Right, right. Exactly. And What's also interesting is that um, the British monarch um, monarch's powers to um, to wage war, to con conduct um, war, conclude peace, 
as well as negotiated treaties, were all considered prerogative powers, which we kind of, some people loosely use prerogative today with respect to the president, and that's not necessarily historically accurate, um, because the prerogative were, it was as like Maitland or, or Dicey said, you know, it was an accumulation of powers, of accessory powers that adhered to the very person of the British monarch. It was very feudal. And Wilson and Madison, when they start to think about, well, what really is, are we talking about when we're discussing the treaty power? It's a prerogative power. How does that help us? And then they say, they, well, you know what? It's actually legislative, which is the influence of 18th century Vettel and the idea of international law. Well, that's a legislative power. So that's why then they thought about putting this in the Senate. And then the Senate still has its two-thirds ratification power. So it, it's, again, this sort of wonderful labyrinthine process by the way in which some of these these powers kind of slither about and move in and out of um, conversation and sort of are transmitted across time. And then they end up specifically where they are in our Constitution, which I kind of think of as an almost like a memory. It's a memory palace, as the rhetor- classical rhetoricians would say, with houses of lots of rooms and lots of sort of memories in them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the debate over what authority a legislature or popular assembly should have over foreign affairs goes way back past the American founding, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, And we're most familiar with these, um, the great debates around the time of and after um, the English Civil War, those kind of fundamental um, debates that become part of the British Constitution. But it goes back, you know, even earlier than that. Um, You find it even in Thucydides, for instance, about, you know, the Nicias and the Sicilian expedition. So this idea has moved back about what should and where does foreign policy fall? And, and by tradition, we think, oh, it's always been the preserve of monarchies. But that's not actually the case. We've had city-states and Republican, again, um, small r, meaning popular forms of, of government, um, for a long period of time. And one of the places in which um, this this was debated perhaps most prominently before you get to um, the aftermath of the English Civil War, was in the, the Renaissance and the early modern period. Um, and specifically, Machiavelli is someone who thought about this quite a, a great deal, as, as the Florentines did in that era, um, because the problem was that foreign affairs were conducted by rotating groups of executives. It was all by committee structure. So people were involved because th- there was no sense of, well, the mayor of the city or in princes, it was principalities, it was different, but that there was no sense that one person needed to um, conduct foreign policy. Um, the problem was they started to find out and the system worked. It worked well. And if you notice, Venice endured until 1807. So there's no reason to believe this can't work. But the problem these city states found was that they were really slow and they couldn't come to decisions quickly enough. That had not been a problem in the 14th century, or in the 15th even. In the 16th, it starts to become a huge problem. They're not able to act effectively and expeditiously. And if they don't learn how to do so, they're going to be conquered. Now, the conventional wisdom is, and even was at that time, well, it's the era of monarchies. Our era is over. But then there were thinkers, um, I think Machiavelli among them, who look back to the Roman Senate, because Rome was the great example of a decisive expansionist republic, to try to figure out, do the people, should people be involved? How much popular 
ratification, popular debate should we have? And this goes back and forth because you see it from de Tocqueville, writes and says foreign policy is one of the areas where people are least able to offer advice and public wisdom should least enter because it's least valuable to Morgenthau saying, you know, none of the as all the attributes of successful foreign policy are precisely those I'm really paraphrasing, paraphrasing generously, um, expansively on his wonderful words, um, are those that do not be diminished by public input because, you know, you have to have a course that will endure over years instead of strategy and appealing to sort of the fickle nature of the popular will. It's just not going to work. That's so often used as a reason to cut people out entirely. So to come up with ways and devices, because people do, popular will does ensure a certain amount of accountability is one of sort of the great challenges of institutional design. Yeah, yeah. You hit upon something that feels to me like is a fundamental kind of conundrum about self-government and foreign policy. On the one hand, foreign policy is exceedingly complex, and it inevitably involves negotiations among nations that require all sorts of interpersonal manipulation and gamesmanship. I mean, you read like Kissinger's memoirs and things like that. I mean, the amount of stroking and fooling and blustering that goes on, it's an extremely complicated game played about by a small number of representatives of each nation. So it, you know, on the nature of the exercise to some degree lends itself to just let the executive do it. On the other hand, if we're going to be a representative democracy, then how is it that we could have representative self-government if we simply take an entire realm of policy off the table and say the legislature has no business talking about this because they don't know foreign affairs. Um, that seems really problematic, not least because defining the boundaries of foreign affairs. Does it include trade? Does it include this? Does it include that? Gets extraordinarily messy. And executives, I should also mention, sometimes make mistakes in diplomacy and in decisions of war and power. What do you think? I think that's true. And that's absolutely, actually, um, Machiavelli would echo this because he go in, in one of the chapters of the discourses, which is his great book on um, republics and the institutional design of republics. He says, you know, but yeah, people make huge mistakes, especially in foreign policy. They love to go to war. They love military adventurism. They can't really be trusted. But then he he's modifies what he's saying. He goes, but princes can't be trusted either. They're prone to the same mistakes. And there's no remedy for that other than steel. When it comes to the populace or the, you know, the common man or the, at that time we would call now the median voter, you could talk to them, right? People after a while aren't fooled in things. And they sort of go back and they change their minds or reason appeals to the, to the majority. So, you know, so then how does that, that's a reason to keep some kind of a public accountability mechanism afterwards, which is like a checking function. But maybe people should be involved in some way or their representatives in formulation of policy. And that's where now Machiavelli has his own solution, I think, with the Senate and unpopular assemblies ratifying certain, especially a declaration of war. And I think we've involved, we've the United States developed a nice method of managing this through the Senate and I think the Committee on Foreign Relations, right? That was one of the original standing committees in 1816. And that's how you get 
constitutionally grounded, not the committee structure, I mean, but advise and consent, a role for, if not sort of broad public plebiscite on certain foreign policy questions. But you have the popular branch, you have a level of expertise, which I know is a tricky word to say, but familiarity with the issues, with the formulation of policy that develops over time. And the Senate allows that through the six-year terms. So that's why it's hard to think of representatives who have the stature of, let's look at, you know, a Cabot Lodge, however you felt about the Treaty of Versailles, right? Or a Luger or a Vandenberg or a Vanek or a Walter George. So you have, or Fulbright, you have senators who achieve a certain preeminence and a knowledge of foreign policy. And the Senate was known as a graveyard of treaties, unless the president took the time to consult with members of um, that committee. And, you know, the argument goes, Wilson might not have had some of the challenges he had with the Treaty of Versailles um, and the League of Nations had he involved the committee earlier. So um, I don't mean that's necessarily that always works. I think there are broader issues with executive agreements rather than treaties. And I think it could be the heyday of certain committees have ended. But I think that was it's fascinating to observe the way in which that committee evolved to implement let's one could say some of that the constitutionals the constitution's allocations in a power um, in, in a way that was successful in certain periods. And perhaps if you're looking back at NATO expansion, even in the 90s, you could say the committee has been successful in performing its function. Yes. And I should underscore something you uh, you pointed out, which is that while it's easy to think of a president as kind of longer in the seat and better equipped, you know, with all the advisors around around him or her, than you know somebody who's been elected, you know, a former used car salesman or a small town lawyer. You know, history has shown that we have senators, we have members of the House who get on foreign affairs committees and they stay there for a very long time, decades, far longer than any president may serve. And as such, they have a depth of knowledge uh, and a cred in overseas nations that it means something and it adds a steadiness to to foreign policy. I'll also just add that it seems to me that foreign policy by its very nature has to have popular consent because inevitably it's going to involve the well-being and lives of the public whether it's trade which can affect prosperity and the well-being of various home industries and the workers or if it's war it's inherently existential somebody's got to fight and die would you agree with that I would. And that has I, that is an argument for, um, of course, degrees of public participation and involvement. And I think the United States has been particularly lucky um, and fortunate, um, as in a way Britain was before, to a lesser extent. Um, you know, utopias are always not not without reason far away on an island or somewhere, you know, ev- far away from other powers. So. The fact that issues of foreign policy were ubiquitous, but yet not as pressing as threatened invasion, I think gave the United States a breathing room. And, and this is not, I mean, this is not a controversial statement, but breathing room before the Civil War to elaborate and evolve and develop as a nation to sort of fill in the rooms of its, the Constitution laid out without, because 
the constant nature of a military threat, which you would argue about the continental monarchies of Europe, are also what kept them monarchies with huge military establishments. And that was detrimental to, in fact and in theory, public involvement in foreign policy. Because it's always an emergency, you, you know, whereas if you have a chance to have a nation, well, yeah, we can talk about foreign commerce. And there's a little bit of space in between that, I think, um, is critical. So, so I think you need, a, you need a balance of foreign policy that does not involve war. But moving back, that also, I think, was a key point Machiavelli noticed was that having a citizen army is important because that means gives people a lever push against suddenly it's it's elected or or however um appointed or assigned because you couldn't always count on hereditary also seemed very was of course extremely um common as a method in choosing leaders and the more you have a popular rather than an army of mercenaries the more people actually do have a say in government more broadly because you saw this in rome again and again they just could say we're not going to go Right or the century assembly could just say no. We're you think this is a good idea? We're not going to go fight. That's critical, um, as well as taxes, because you can only extract a certain amount of taxation for um, for um, wars of adventure before you start to have difficulties in the coinage of money or in popular rebel or in rebellion at home. Yes, yes. Uh, control of the the, the war making power is quite potent. If you don't have an executive with power to compel people to do the fighting, and if you also have to rely upon a popular legislature to provide the money and to do so with some frequency and not to give money for very long, long periods of time. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. I want to thank you, Alyssa Ditto, for helping us think about Congress and the role it should have in foreign affairs. You're welcome, and thank you so much. This was really so much fun. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Mikkel Good and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others. And tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. We hope you have a great day.